I believe recruiting is decision science. So if you go up a level and if you just look at decision science as a practice, that's what they all have in common. So people can, I can make the mistake of saying, well, recruiting is marketing, so we should just, you know, copy them. So, oh, hang on a second. Best marketeers lean on decision science. Welcome to Be More, a podcast by Pecan. This is where everyone at an organization can hear different and meaningful perspectives on how we can all thrive in this ever-changing and constantly evolving world of work. I'm your host, Patrick Cornoyer. Johnny Campbell has worked in the world of recruiting for over 20 years. He has been a recruiter, he's built recruitment and sourcing agencies, and most recently, he has built an incredibly successful company called Social Talent. This organization has grown and evolved over the past decade into a scaled platform that has empowered hundreds of thousands of sourcers, recruiters, and teams around the world. When I spoke to Johnny, one word kept coming to my mind, resilience. Johnny's passion is productivity. He constantly asks himself, how can people be super productive and at the same time really love what they do? His goal is to help teams work really well. Johnny and I discuss his ideas on how to retain talent, and I am sure you are going to enjoy his perspective and personal stories over the next 30 minutes. Johnny, thank you for joining the conversation today. Thanks for having me, Patrick. Yeah, I'm excited. We're going to have a great conversation. I've been doing quite a bit of research on you, and there are many areas that I want to dive into today. As you know, this season is all about talent within organizations and acquiring talent, retaining talent. We know that there's a big shift in the workforce right now, and many organizations, if not all organizations, are really focused on what they need to do to retain their talent and to attract new talent. You have built a career around helping organizations do this in many ways. So let's start with a bit about you, your journey in your career, and a bit around your passion for the work that you're doing right now. Sure thing, Patrick. So what do you need to know about me? I'll give you the, the points that might be relevant. We can digress into crazy stuff later on, Patrick. Perfect, perfect. So I started as a recruiter straight out of at a university. I uh, went to work in a staffing agency in Dublin in the late 90s and you know, was doing accountancy and finance recruitment for you know a decade. Got a call one day, the headhunter asked me would I move to the Cayman Islands to run a recruitment agency there. I quickly rented the firm on uh, DVD. And uh, you remember those? And uh, checked it on a map to see where it was. Oh, it's near Cuba. Where is that near? Okay, it's near the, near the States, near Miami. And uh, moved to the Cayman Islands, ran a recruitment agency there for two years, came back to Ireland, set up a, a recruiting agency in Ireland back in 2008, back in June 2008, with a, an Irish guy I'd met over in Cayman. And I convinced him that we'd you know, take over the world through the world of staffing. And then three months later, Bear Stearns fell. There was a massive global recession. The world went to pot and we had our first baby. So yay, good times. And uh, quite quickly, we did, we just survived, to be honest with you, Patrick. We went from you know drinking champagne mojitos in the Ritz on a Friday night to uh, figuring out which is the, the cheapest bread to buy because I was earning nothing and going through all my savings and trying to make a recruiting agency work when no one was hiring. You know, at the time, what was the world's biggest recession? 
fast forward a year or two, we turn things around. And we turn things around because we kind of discovered this new world of sourcing, which was kind of, we didn't know that, we didn't know that word at the time, but a way of finding talent on the internet as social media was exploding. And because of the recession, people are always in a recession wanting to try new things and want to try new things. And that started to work. But we realized that either, you know, we were going to be the only staffing firm in the world using those techniques, unlikely, or, you know, really we should teach the world how to use these, use these techniques. And so we created Social Talent back in late 2010 as a company that was going to train the world on the new way of recruiting as it was at the time. Using social media, you know, being able to, you know, approach passive talent. LinkedIn was blowing up at the time and Twitter was blowing up, Facebook blowing up, all these different things. And initially that was an in-person training company. And as we scaled and I got to five days a week traveling around most of Europe at the time, the Nordics, the UK, the Netherlands, training teams of 12 people a day, five days a week on a plane every night with uh, a young child at home. We, this didn't scale. And so we, we went and put it all online, created videos and moved to online learning and then built a software platform to host it. So you know, it became a online learning platform for uh, the recruiting industry. And, you know, the curriculum developed, we kind of, we solved that pain that, you know, we taught tens of thousands of people how to source. We then moved on to, well, how do you hire? How do you recruit? And then we started saying, well, you know, that problem is a bigger problem than this. We, you know, hiring isn't just done by recruiters, it's done by the whole business. So who else is involved? We got to teach them about hiring. And then when you start digging into that problem, as I'm sure you know, Patrick, you start going, well, you know what? It doesn't end at hiring. All of a sudden, you need to think about, well, how do we onboard folks? How do we, how do we make sure we've got good managers managing these people? What's their role in that? It becomes more complex. And eventually, all of a sudden, you're looking at the entire business and saying, how do we make sure that we're not just helping an organization hire, but if I go back to what we're trying to do today, Patrick, is how do we make sure that organizations have productive, inclusive, and engaged teams? that's actually what organizations want. They don't really care how you do it. Hire people, retain people, move people around. We don't really care. What we want are teams do amazing work that gel together really well, come up with creative solutions in the best possible way. And they're always engaged and motivated to do that. And I guess my passion has always been about productivity. How do you make sure that people are more productive? I saw in the, in the recruiting world how there was so much waste in, in how people recruited 10, 15 years ago. And really, I have a passion to try and remove that. But also at the same time, you know, I realize work can be fun. It should be exciting. So how do you balance that? How do you make sure that people are super productive, but they really love what they do? And it's kind of more balanced in terms of they can live a really rich, full life by doing great work and being super productive. I love the fact that you have had this really impactful journey with understanding recruitment particularly from the recession, 2008-2009 times. And I was also doing recruiting at that time. And to see how there are very similar experiences right now that organizations are feeling to how they felt all that time ago, because there's a lot of stress on organizations, different types of stress on organizations, but a lot of stress on organizations around recruiting new talent, retaining new talent, as you said, and making sure that there's a long-term plan and path for their teams. I really feel that there has never been more expectation in the workplace around what does my future look like at this company for the next two, three, five years. 
and individual tracks. That's that's very much an expectation of the workforce today, which I think is amazing because the more that organizations focus on how am I going to individually develop this member of my team into being a an incredible member of a larger team, as you said, a highly effective team to drive my organization and my business forward. I think there's a there's a great a great focus on that now, which encourages and excites me in many ways. But just before we move on, your organization has helped other organizations hire over a million people over the past 10 years. That's incredibly impressive. That's a big number. It's probably 2 million people that last year, a million people the year before. Wow. I have a bit of an obsession about impact, Patrick. Yes. When I was training 12 people at a time, I'm going, this is good fun, but like, how do I, how do I reach more? And, you know, I became a, an early YouTuber. I didn't even know that phrase back then <laughs> by putting free videos on and, you know, online and how to do different things. And to this day, I get folks who meet me at a conference in the U S and all over the place who go, Hey, I watched your YouTube videos like six years ago. And I became a recruiter and now I work for Google and now I work for Facebook. And I love that. Right. Did we make money out of that? No. Does it matter? No. You know, it's that you have reach and impact. So I love that. I always say, I don't recruit anymore. My family still come to me and go, hey, can you get this guy a job? He's a friend of mine. You do recruitment. I'm going, oh, I don't do recruitment. I used to, but I recruit vicariously through others, Patrick. And that's the way I see it. Like there are tens of thousands of people every day who learn on the social talent platform how to hire better. And what I like to think is that they go into, whether it's a, an assignment to go source talent or it's a, an interview with a bunch of folks or they're about to onboard a new employee or they're having their first meeting with their new team. They're going to be doing it better because of an insight tip or something that, that inspired them uh, from one of the authors on our platform that made them think or gave them the tools to do it better. Because I do believe that everybody wants to do it better. Leaders want to lead better. Recruiters want to recruit better. HR folks want to do their job better. And some of you just don't know how to do it. And we genuinely don't know. It's inspiring when you see the impact. And this is what online allows you to do, Patrick, as you know, in your business, you can have such reach so fast in so many organizations. And the organizations we work with, they hire tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people a year. And that's where you have the real power is that when those individuals do an amazing job, like a genuine, you know, you know what it's like, work is important. It's a big part of all of our lives. If you can make better hiring decisions, hire better people, treat them more fairly, more equitably, like to be able to be even a small part of that is just brilliant. Yeah. I share that passion with you. Could you explain to the audience the retention equation? Sure. You mentioned the top of the podcast, the importance of retention. I'll just talk about that for a second. Organizations right now are seeing this great exodus of talent. You know, post-pandemic, when attrition rates dropped, they're seeing the great resignation that's being called by, by many in the press lately. And we're losing talent, losing talent to other careers, to other employers, all these things. And that's a massive, massive challenge in most times. But it's particularly challenging now because there's no one to replace them. The labor market hasn't been this tight for nearly most skills. In the UK, last week, I read that most of the supermarkets, they have no stock on their shelves. Why? Not because of, yes, a bit of Brexit, a bit of pandemic, but largely because they can't hire lorry drivers and all the food companies. Who knew? You can't get a lorry driver. And in the UK, apparently, I was told yesterday, their prime minister is releasing people early from prison to allow them to drive lorries to fix this problem, right? That's never happened before, right? So you have this challenge where you've more people leaving and you can't replace them. 
So you have to focus on retaining them. You can't just hire your way out of this. And so when I think about retention, unfortunately, what most people do, they worry about retention when someone's about to leave or has just resigned. One of our, my good friends and one of our speakers, Bev Kay, who's written several books on this. She's an inspiration. She talks about how, you know, rather than having an exit interview, you should do a stay interview. You know, you should anticipate that people may exit the exit your role, your department, whatever. And so therefore you should always be having these stay interviews um, to understand why they stay and then make sure that you have the right ingredients or if they're not going to stay, you're helping them move on. So it's thinking about, you know, retention much earlier. And when I started thinking about this and looking at how our customers are solving for this, it hit me that there's three real components to retaining talent. Engagement, which is the last piece, is what most of us focus on. How do I retain people, make them more engaged, give them more opportunity, and so on and so forth. And that is really important. But actually, there's two other components. And the two other components are hiring and onboarding. So how and who you hire, how they're onboarded, and then how you engage them. The three of them are multipliers to retention. If you've hired the wrong person, fundamentally, I don't mean that they're bad at their job, but they're a mismatch for the skill set or the team or the values that you require in your organization. It doesn't matter how well you onboard them or how, how much you try and engage them. They just weren't right at the start. So you're going to have a retention problem. If you are a great, great person, you got it all right, you got it nailed in the hiring process, but then you make a mess of onboarding them. Like they arrive in their first week, nobody meets them, and there's no clear uh, responsibilities, no clear targets or, or requirements or outputs that they'll be measured by. They're left to wander for a few months, which happens even more online, unfortunately. And then they eventually figure it out. And then you try and engage them. Well, they were a great talent, but you made a mess of it. And you kind of can't go back. It's like the first date goes wrong. It's hard to come back from that. You want the first date to go well. So onboarding is super critical. And then, of course, engagement. You know, you've got the right person. You've onboarded them. How do you basically keep them engaged? And engagement is really, how do you keep them challenged? In a way that you're giving them the tools and resources, you're showing them uh, where they need to go, supporting them to get there, allowing them to flourish. And if that means, of course, exiting your team to go somewhere else and do a new mission in your organization, then you've got, you got, to, you got to support that. And it's the three of them. Now, imagine you have a score of one on each, or let's call it, say a score of two for the maths, two by two by two, and you're going to get this wonderful eight. And if one of those is a 1.5, it impacts everything. If it's a 0.5, it reduces everything. And that's my point around not just the three factors, Patrick, but the fact that they're multipliers. And so therefore, if you really want to think about retention, you got to start back with your hiring, do it really well, make sure your onboarding is really, really good, and make sure that you're engaging your workforce uh, all along as well. One of the challenges that I hear in, in speaking with uh, different guests on the podcast is this change in ownership of the experience between hiring and onboarding, right? One team very responsible for the hiring process, right? You look at your talent acquisition, your recruitment teams, they really are focused on how do I create the best candidate experience through the recruitment process? They're really focused on getting that, the offer out, getting the background checks or what do you know all of those like processes that can be a bit sticky and and a bit time consuming and stressful for the candidate trying to keep that really smooth then in most organizations recruitment teams responsibility end at the time where the offer is signed they they have agreed to come on board and join the team and then they're handed over to another team for quote unquote the onboarding experience 
That process in many organizations is a really big stress point and a struggle because an experience may be excellent in one of these three, those three processes that you talked about. Maybe maybe the, the hiring process is not amazing, but the onboarding process is amazing or vice versa. How do you think of in your organization, I mean, you're the CEO of your organization and you work with many organizations around the world. Do you think that there's a solution for that? Do you have a suggestion on how do we make that process, particularly the first two steps in that, that equation that you talked about, be more seamless, be more connected? Well, I start with the framing of it. Mm. I frame it in the context of the 2012 Olympic Games. In the 2012 Olympic Games, Usain Bolt won the gold medal for the fastest 100 meters. And he still holds that record, I believe, to this day. And in the same games, the Jamaican team, consisting of Usain Bolt, won the relay race, the 300-meter relay uh, race, and got gold. And if you look at that, the time that Usain Bolt ran 100 meters in versus the time Usain Bolt plus two other non-Usain Bolts ran 100 meters, 300 meters, you ask anyone, well, what do you think? Let's say I told you Usain Bolt ran it in 10 seconds. It was close. If you say, well, Usain plus two other slower people ran 300-meter relay, uh, what time do you think that would be? Most people are like, well, let's say 30 seconds plus a bit, right? In truth, um, they ran it faster on average than Usain Bolt running each of the three relay sections himself. And the reason why you can do that is because it's not about the speed of each individual runner per se. Of course, you've got to be elite top of the world. It's about the handoffs. It's about how one team member hands off to the other. I think to your point, Patrick, you can have three amazing processes. You can have an amazing hiring process, amazing onboarding process, and great employee engagement. What does the handoff look like? Right? You'll, you'll get so far. Don't get me wrong with three great processes. But you also have to think about the handoffs. And this is where I think it gets interesting. And the pandemic tested a lot of organizations, but also led to a lot of experimentation, unintentional experimentation. I'll give you one example. A customer we were with is Cisco. And in Cisco, they own hiring and HR owns onboarding. And the hiring team always you know, wants to make sure that the onboarding process was, was really good, particularly around you know, making sure equipment is ready for day one, you know, laptops are ordered, all this kind of stuff. Uh, otherwise, the candidate would have a bad experience, but it wasn't their job, right? The pandemic hit, hiring was frozen and onboarding. So the HR team were like, like undersea with, you know, underwater with, with so much work going on. And they said, like, somebody has got to help us with this. And the recruiting team said, well, we're free. And they jumped in and I really helped them fix the virtual onboarding process. And the same happened in IBM. We worked with the team at the same time and many other organizations. And then when the dust settled or begun to kind of be, kind of settle, the business stood back and said, that worked. And those people stood up and they could really do it. And we've seen that the teams have become much more integrated. You've seen recruiters responsible for much more of the onboarding process and then vice versa. And you see the, that the handoff was forced to happen fast and it's got a lot smoother. And so they're much more aligned. And you see increasingly folks in the recruiting area, let's say in-house, it's called talent acquisition. More and more, they're becoming talent professionals like in Cisco and in IBM, the heads of talent acquisition post-initial post part of the pandemic were both given global responsibility for onboarding. You know, the CHRO went, you know what, that worked. You own that now, right? And increasingly, you're seeing talent acquisition professionals who owned hiring are being told, you own a much longer experience you know, you're going to oversee that, or we're going to merge the two teams, parts of the team's talent, which 
you know, if I think, think of the three parts, you've got leadership development, you've got onboarding, you've got L&D, you've got diversity, equity, inclusion, you've got talent acquisition, starts at kind of putting them in the same team under the same leader with the same budget saying, figure it out as a team. No longer will you be three different silos. We're going to try and make sure this works together. I think that's the starting point, Patrick, to actually making this work. You just mentioned uh, Usain Bolt. That was a great analogy as well. He was just a special guest at one of our Workday conferences uh, a couple of weeks ago. And really fascinating and really great uh, analogy. We're going to keep the sports analogy moving forward because you have previously said a couple of times, I think you're passionate about this, that hiring is a team sport, right? So tell us a bit about how you see that and, and your perspective on how organizations should look at hiring as a team sport. The first day I really realized this, because I've been recruiting a long time as an agency recruiter on the outside and I worked with some teams, but I was on site with the recruiters in Intel here in Ireland a few years ago. And Ireland is the second largest manufacturing location for Intel in the world. And it was at the time. And the team had been working on this 2020 goal. It was a five-year plan to get to parity in terms of their hiring with gender diversity. And they were nailing their goals. They were hiring, you know, 50% female hires. But at the time when I was brought in by a friend of mine to meet the team, they were really frustrated because they were seeing these hires come into the business and exit just as quick, the female talent. And it wasn't their job and they'd hit their metric and they were happy and, you know, should have been happy, but they weren't. Understandably, because they were like, the goal is to have more women in the business because that drives better innovation in terms of diversity and everything else and better business results. That's what we want. We don't want to just hit a metric and then forget about it. And that's when I realized like, ah, this is a bigger thing. The same happened to me in the same year, I was brought in by a friend to meet the team in Microsoft in Ireland. And it was actually not the recruiting team this time. It was a, it was a bunch of heads of departments. And I've been brought in by a friend of mine who was an ex-Googler who got into the Microsoft team and said, oh, by the way, we never would hire someone from Google up until last year, until Satya came in. Like you just didn't touch Google people in Microsoft. And he said, we still have cultural issues where people are, you know, there's a mixture of the old school thinking and the new school thinking. Let's talk about hiring. And I realized there was, you know, a bit of work to be done there. And we did some workshops with some hiring managers. But those two experiences in the same short period of time made me really kind of realize that if you're going to do hiring well, there's several stakeholders. And from a candidate's perspective, an employee, a potential employee's perspective, they don't care who's who. They just met an asshole in the process. If you meet an asshole in the process, that's it. You're done. There isn't, well, you know, the recruiters were really good. Now, the HR person was an absolute asshole, but I'm still going to work for them because the recruiters were great. They're like, just like, there was a horrible person in the process, right? Or somebody did something that was offensive or maybe feel uncomfortable or was just amateurish. And it might be a neg it might be a traditional negative thing. My good friend John Vasilika, who's educated me a lot out of Seattle on really how do you do good interviewing, he, you know, opened my eyes to that. If you want to impress a great candidate, talk about candidate experience, you know, particularly someone technical, ask her difficult and relevant questions. Like that's a good candidate experience because it says they know their stuff about my area. Like they really get it. And therefore you'd assume as a candidate, if I get this job, I'm going to end up working with smart people. Now, I don't mean the stupid questions about how do you get out of a box with two shovels? I don't know. You know, it's the kind of relevant question to my discipline that's been well thought out and, and really designed uh, interestingly. So, so it's even the lack of that could be a poor experience. And that's everyone involved. It's the recruiters, of course. It's the HR folk who come in, the HR VPs. It's the hiring manager and her team or any interviewers. It's everyone. They have to align. 
Now you think about recruiting, the recruiter needs to know the most, needs to know the most. They're the expert. But in terms of the hygiene factors, everybody else has to have at least the hygiene factor level in there. And that should, if you take our earlier question to its full conclusion, that needs to follow through and how I get onboarded, all of these processes, right? You know, it's the whole it's a consumer experience. You know, I walk into the retail store, it feels fantastic. What's my experience constantly dealing with this brand? And when it goes wrong, does it continue to be great? My loyalty depends on my entire experience, not just the experience with one part of the consumer business. The same goes with an employee experience. Everybody has to feel like they're part of this good experience. No point in just creating an upfront great experience. Then when I join, it's like, this is hell. Recruiters are cool, but my God, everybody else is awful. I like that analogy to the consumer experience with the employee experience, because another thing that, that I've been seeing and in, in talking with colleagues in the, in the space marketing and people operations have become so much more aligned. And I think about 10 years ago when I was working and leading recruitment for an organization, we didn't really work all that closely with marketing. We would definitely work with some of the values of the external mission statement and try to incorporate that. But now with employee value proposition and how much marketing what your organization has to offer to talent has become so much more important and also how you market your offering to an employee it's advanced so much further than what your salary is or what your paycheck is going to look like there's so much more involved in that in, in employee value proposition total pay packages but the idea here is that Marketing is, in general, I think, is very good at looking at what is the consumer experience? What is the experience of the external customer for our product? And there's a lot that can be learned from internal recruitment processes by studying and understanding and working with marketing teams within organizations and really thinking about every step of the process because I mean, that's the world of a marketer, right? Is to understand and create this experience. So I'm also quite inspired to see these two teams that classically really have never worked as closely together as they are today. Because to your point, the looking at the consumer experience and the employee experience through the same lens or through a similar lens can be incredibly beneficial for our company. Well, if I can add to that, please. I don't believe that recruiting is marketing, marketing is recruiting, or sales is recruiting and sales is marketing. I believe recruiting is decision science. I believe marketing is decision science. And I believe sales is decision science. So if you go up a level, and if you just look at decision science as a practice, that's what they all have in common. So people can, I can make the mistake of saying, well, recruiting is marketing, so we should just you know copy them. So, oh, hang on a second. Best marketeers lean on decision science. And so therefore, what are they leaning on? Let's talk to them and let's learn the same things. You go back to Danny Kahneman's work from Thinking Fast and Slow that he wrote, won the Nobel Prize for. I always say to anyone going into sales or marketing or recruiting, read that book, please. Your job depends on it. If you're a manager in a team, you should read that book because it's about decision science. The commonality between all those things is the person. And we are the same. How do we make decisions? How are we influenced? And that's what a marketeer is trying to control. It's what a recruiter is trying to control and what a salesperson is trying to influence. So therefore, you kind of go to the root cause of understand people, understand decision science, and you can nail any of those jobs. So let's talk a bit about internal mobility. Big focus area for organizations today, as you said, the importance of retaining talent within a company is 
top of mind for, I would venture to say, every company <laughs> right now because we all want to retain our talent. Internal mobility is a very important topic now. And recruiting for the idea of internal mobility or the future potential of internal mobility is quite important. How do you suggest incorporating skills or a thought process around, let's not just hire the person that's going to be able to do the job today. How do we look a year, two years, five years down the road at this candidate now to really think about how we would focus internal mobility or provide internal mobility? How does recruitment fit into that process or do they? It does. It's, it's more complicated even than that, Patrick. Um, so you look at some very evolved recruiting processes and the ones that are most examples are Googles and Amazons where you typically move towards hiring committees and the hiring committees approve somebody for a hire. It's not the hiring manager who has to make the final decision, the hiring committee, because the hiring committee have the business's interests and hearts at heart. Uh, and I'm, I'm sure the manager does too, but the manager is primarily looking at someone to fill the job on her team. So she's going to look at that. So the hiring committee will say, well, we'll tell you if it's right for the business. And then from the people we say are okay, you can go hire who we want for your role. But like, we need to look at the business uh, in a wider context. And that's brilliant. And I've, I welcome that move towards towards uh, what is kind of skills-based hiring, which has actually been driven actually more in the last year and a half by the lack of availability of people with experience. So we're all having to do skills-based hiring because the experience isn't out there anymore or isn't out there in the volume we want, which is a good thing, by the way. I think it's a really good thing. But even though you do that, and companies will pride themselves on this, and they go, in theory, we're bringing people in that are going to be future talent for the, for the organization. And that is a great idea. The reality, Patrick, is that when... You look at all organizations, most organizations, when you get to two, three years in an organization, you're probably looking to move on, maybe even 18 months. You want a new challenge. And if your own team is not giving you a challenge, you'll look maybe elsewhere in the organization and you'll look externally for an opportunity. If you do find an internal job to go for, what happens when you apply for an internal job in most companies today, Patrick, and I know this from talking to them, is one, your boss has the right to veto you right? Your boss gets told, hey, Patrick, apply for this job. You okay with employing? No, I'm not. I need him. Okay, well, he, I'll throw his resume in the bin, right? Or, or worse still, you're not even told about this job. Somebody else is told about it. But let's say let's say your boss says it's okay, or maybe your boss isn't asked and, and the privacy is maintained. When your resume is handed to that hiring manager, she's not given this your resume alongside the external candidates. The external candidates have been prepped, vetted, and, and lost by a recruiter who summarized the five best candidates and you know standardized the presentation of those with summary details. The internal resumes usually get a big pile of, oh yeah, these are the 26 internal applicants. You're a busy hiring manager. Which list do you look at? So process-wise, there's a load of things broken in internal mobility that's preventing people from moving. I spoke with a good friend of mine who works in a big tech company recently who runs executive recruiting. And he kind of, he's out the door with exec hiring at the moment. And he's only in the company recently. And he said, you know what, Johnny? I realized that half of the recs I have, we don't need because we have an unbelievable amount of amazing executive talent in our organization. But the execs at the top level hiring don't know who's in their organization. They've never met people outside the departments because we don't spend enough day-to-day -day creating networking opportunities for those. And then there can be a perception that internal talent isn't as good as external talent. And therefore, let's hire the outside people. They'll solve the problems we can't solve. Except we did hire them two years ago in a different department. And now that person wants a new move. And you know what? If you don't know who they are and don't consider them, they're going to go to Facebook. And then in two years, you'll want them back and we'll have to pay them 50% more. It's like, 
Oh, so internal mobility is a complex thing. Hiring has to be part of it because yes, you've got to hire the skills for the organization, um, but your hiring process also has to be augmented. And I see more teams, again, post-pandemic, and probably through force rather than choice, and they're now being forced to look at these processes and merge them and align them and try and challenge managers to say, we're not going to tell you that your team are looking for an internal move. Because you know what? Our competitors don't tell us when they're poaching our staff. So we'd rather keep them in the organization. And I, I, you know, more companies do this. A Standard Charter Bank, a big organization you might be familiar with, their journey started in this 12 years ago. And today you apply for an internal job. Your boss won't know until the day you've been you've accepted the internal move. And the notice period your boss is given is, is the same as you would give if you were leaving for an external job. It's the way it should be, right? It took them a long time to get there. But on the same note, the recruiting team will recognize the data and patterns. They'll see, hang on a second, there's a pattern of, let's say, the sales team. We've had you know, 26 people from this sales organization apply for internal roles. We'll do the maths and say 13 of them are going to get jobs in the next six months. So we need to inform the team that there's probably a need to backfill 13 roles coming. So let's build a pipeline. That's how we can help the organization. So again, recruiting needs to think about how do we anticipate challenges through data, not revealing the name of the person who wants the job. How do we use data to then form the business and help them? You're speaking my language with data, Johnny. I am a big fan of using data and making data-driven decisions. I mean, that's that has been the, the core of Pecan for since we started six years ago. So Johnny, we are at the end of our time. I would love to continue the conversation, particularly maybe in about a year from now, I'd love to to revisit the conversation and see how the world has, particularly work, has evolved and how recruitment processes and also that connection between that three-point equation or three-step equation has evolved. I share your enthusiasm and and focus around that. I completely agree with you about the fact that those three are so interconnected and critical for success. So I would be quite interested to have another conversation in a year and, and see where we're at, where we are at. But Johnny, first off, thank you very much for sharing your thoughts and your passion for the work that you're doing. How can the audience find you? What's the easiest way to find you? Yes, I'd Johnny Campbell, our social talent to Google, you'll probably find me. But yeah, I'm active on LinkedIn. I'm active on Twitter. You can find out if you are obsessed and want to know about my personal life. You can find pictures of what I do in my private life on Instagram, including gigs I want to go back to once I can go back to them and stuff. So I'm everywhere at Johnny Campbell on most platforms. And you can find us and, and more of our resources on socialtalent.com. Socialtalent.com. Excellent. And there was also a book that you mentioned that... Uh, we'll definitely link in the the podcast link as well. I always like to share with the audience the inspiration points, the podcasts, the books that they listen to or that they read to help them uh, gain inspiration and help guide their personal path. So thank you for sharing a few of, of those. We'll link them uh, in the podcast as well. But Johnny, thank you very much for your insights. I know the audience is really going to enjoy it. And I hope we can have another conversation in a year. I'd enjoy that. Thanks, Patrick. It was my pleasure. And that was Be More, a podcast by Pecan. Be sure to search for Be More in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify, or anywhere else that you get your podcasts from. And go ahead and subscribe so that you don't miss out on any future conversations. 
On behalf of the team here at Pecan, thanks for listening. <laughs>